Welcome to Critical Window, a podcast from the Alliance for Excellent Education that explores the rapid changes happening in the body and the brain during adolescence and what these changes mean for educators, policymakers, and communities. This week on Critical Window, we're doing something a little bit different. All Fred previously sat down and recorded a webinar with Dr. Ronald Dahl, a pediatrician and developmental scientist, to discuss his research on the topic of adolescent neurodevelopment and what it might mean for schools, teaching, and learning. We found the conversation to be so insightful that we wanted to share it with you all. Today's podcast presents highlights from our conversation with him. As I mentioned, our guest today on this podcast is Dr. Ronald Dahl. Dr. Dahl is a pediatrician and developmental scientist who researches adolescent development. His research ranges from basic studies in neurobiology and psychology to clinical studies in pediatrics and child psychiatry. Through his research, Dr. Dahl is committed to fostering interdisciplinary studies that consider the social, familial, and cultural contexts that shape neurobehavioral development with the long-term goal of improving the lives of children and adolescents. In addition to this research, Dr. Dahl serves as a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley, and is the director for both the Institute of Human Development and the Center for the Developing Adolescent, both at UC Berkeley. Dr. Dahl, thank you so much for being with us today and for your contributions to the field of adolescent development and brain research. I'm going to start off by asking you to share with our viewers information about your research and what it tells us about adolescents and their neurodevelopment. Thank you. And a key part of what we are understanding about adolescence is that it's a perfect storm of interacting levels of change. That is, it's not simply changes in brain development, it's a time of rapid physical growth, the second fastest growth of the lifespan. Only infants grow more quickly. It's a time that there's this activation of new drives and motivations. It's a time that there are sex-specific changes in faces and voices and body characteristics. It's the face that kids are seeing in the mirror is changing as they go through puberty. The faces of their friends are changing. It's a time when they have changes in sleep and their, their circadian regulation, metabolic changes, and a wide array of cognitive and emotional changes. And most importantly, profound changes in social motivation, social context, and social roles. The reason I'm emphasizing these issues of dynamic changes across levels is that at each level we look at, whether it's the deep biology and molecular changes, behavioral changes, the neurodevelopmental changes that I'm going to talk about a lot, changes in peers, family, school, culture, technology, and media, um, that those changes are inherently causing changes at other levels. As the brain changes, the p interest in peers and in the selection of peers is influenced by those brain changes. As individuals interact with different peers, then the media and technology they use changes, but then the experiences of technology and media are then changing the brain. So these, if I put double arrows across every level, you wouldn't be able to read the words. But if we don't understand these interactions, then we can't understand the spirals. And then of course, Another important dimension that often doesn't get discussed about puberty and adolescence is, and I love this quote, in figuring out how to relate to the world and yourself as a suddenly and mystifyingly sexual being. And these dynamics that stir up and churn strong emotions and strong feelings and these interactions are important to understand because they set the stage for these spirals that as things start to go badly, they unravel and affect other levels of the systems. Now, we have focused in, a, in the traditional research in this area on what I call the dark side of this. Um, 
that these rapid interactions, these multiple levels of bi-directional interactions um, that are actively sculpting these developing neural systems create vulnerabilities. Because these interactions are happening quickly and inter interacting across these levels, this sets the stage for what a lot of people stereotype adolescence as this time of vulnerability and problems. And, and it's what I would call the dark side of the spiral. And it's clearly true. It's part of what we call the health paradox of adolescence. And it's a paradox because on one hand, adolescence is the healthiest period of the lifespan. Almost everything you can measure, if you go from elementary school across adolescence into early adulthood, gets better. Strength, speed, reaction time, reasoning abilities, cognitive skills, immune function, resistance to cold, heat, hunger, dehydration, most types of injuries. And yet, overall death and disability rates jump 200 to 300% between elementary school and early, er, <coughs> early adulthood. And of course, these aren't mysterious medical illnesses. These are problems with the control of behavior and emotion. It's increasing rates of accidents, suicide, homicide, depression, alcohol and substance use, violence, reckless behaviors, eating disorders, sexually transmitted diseases, health problems related to risky behaviors broadly, worsening obesity. And in addition to the measurable levels of death and disability, this is a time when patterns of behavior are instantiated that have long-term consequences across the lifespan. The most striking example is smoking. If you look at people who are going to develop emphysema and heart disease and lung cancer in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, almost every one of them will have begun smoking in adolescence between ages 10 to 20. So if we're going to focus on the trajectory to these health problems, we need to understand that adolescence is the, is the key inflection point for many, many, many outcomes. But what is equally important and less understood because it's been more difficult to study. For everything we've said about these dynamic interactions across systems that create negative spirals, creates opportunities for positive spirals. This is a time of rapid changes that create opportunities for learning, for exploration, for acquiring skills, habits, for shaping intrinsic motivations, heartfelt goals, and passions. These are unique opportunities for social, emotional, and motivational learning that shape deep feelings that are having enduring effects as well as habits and patterns of behavior. We need to understand that the opportunity to, to scaffold and support and nudge positive developmental spirals is equally important and equally impactful. And from an education perspective, perhaps the most important challenge in, in using the science. The first place I want to start with this work, uh, particularly the work over the past several years, not only in my lab and our center, but in but a number of labs around the world, is to push back against what I think is a, is a, a non-helpful myth of that adolescents behave the way they do and that these negative vulnerabilities emerge because their brains aren't working well, that they're broken, that they're missing part of their prefrontal cortex. These metaphors don't fit the science and they don't serve understanding adolescence. Adolescents' prefrontal cortex work very well when they're motivated to do something, when they're engaged, when they have passions. They can recruit their prefrontal cortex quite well. Adolescent brains are very well adapted to the tasks and challenges of adolescence. They direct their attention and salience and what they will react to to their social world, to learn about the complex social world and their place in it as an individual. They are tuned to that and reacting to that in ways that can override their cognitive abilities. 
But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with their brains. They're doing what the adolescent brain should do. They're, they're focusing and prioritizing learning about their complex social world. And if you want a simple example about the adolescent brains, let me pose this question. If there was a new technology that emerged or an ability to do something as tedious as text messaging and you wanted to compare who was going to master this more quickly, an adolescent brain or an adult brain, I can tell you where most of us would place our bets. If it's a way to increase your social world, adolescents will master the learning very rapidly. If they're being told that they need to learn something because it's going to help them sometime in the future, then their brains may not look like they work very well. But it's not because something's wrong with their brain. And I think this is an important point to highlight, that these shifts in priorities for attention and learning, as we'll talk about later, we shouldn't think about as an inadequacy or somehow we should wait until their brains are more mature. This is a key time for positive learning. And that these patterns of experience are really calibrating the social and emotional valuing systems in the brain that generate feelings about what matters and what doesn't matter. These heartfelt goals and priorities are being shaped by these experiences in ways that can have positive impact. We're doing a disservice to the brain if we think that it's all about rational thought. Feelings can be smart, wise feelings. We can have passions for good causes and purposes that guide our value systems. And shaping these systems are as important as shaping, shaping the ability for the thinking brain to suppress emotions. That's a far too simplistic understanding of what it means to become mature or wise. Now, we, a, a colleague and I did a, a meta-analysis uh, uh, back uh, in, 19, in 2011 and we published in 2012 of all the functional brain imaging studies at that time in adolescence, and we showed evidence that a simple model of an immature prefrontal cortex did not fit the data very well at all. As a part of that paper that we published, we highlighted that there was really strong evidence for changes in the emotional and social processing systems in the brain when puberty began that created increased sensitivity to certain kinds of rewards and strong feelings and self-conscious emotions, and those systems interact with the thinking planning brain in ways that can derail them. I'm sorry. Um, and this is important to understand. Uh, I don't have to go over all the details of the model, but when puberty begins, it affects subsets of systems and circuits in the brain that are involved in processing social and emotional input and sensitizes that. That recruits parts of the thinking planning brain in flexible ways. That can lead the way to negative spirals across mid to late adolescence. If, if those priorities begin to be aimed at risky behaviors and dangerous behaviors and drugs and alcohol, but in the same way, if those priorities become aimed at positive passions for long-term goals, for adapting and mastering challenges and feeling admired for those very positive things in one's life, those spirals can become very positive. And for most adolescents, they are. Most adolescents get through this period quite well, getting along with their teachers and their parents and have good friends and do wonderful things and are idealistic and contribute to the world. We need to understand that these positive spirals are at least as important, if not more important, than the negative spirals. Thank you for that robust and comprehensive overview. Your research clearly shows that adolescence is far more complex than we previously thought. You emphasize that adolescence is not a period of impaired functioning, but rather a normal developmental stage for teenagers. With this in mind, what age do you define as the beginning of adolescence, and at what age does it end? First of all, adolescence is not being a teenager. 
it actually starts before being 13 or 14 because puberty happens early and has been happening earlier. So it's from the beginning of this rapid physical changes at puberty. And when does adolescence end? Well, that's a difficult thing to define biologically. It is when you take on adult roles and responsibilities. That's a long period of time. That is often from ages 9, 10, or 11 when puberty is starting. And in the mid-20s, lots of people are still living with their parents and having a hard time feeling like they're adults. So it's helpful to consider three general windows. I'm going to talk a lot about the transition into adolescence, the onset of puberty as the most dynamic period that creates probably new plasticity and specialized learning in the brain. That early inflection point is often ignored because we think of adolescents as teenagers that are 15 to 19 with problems. But if we want to do positive scaffolding of the most important inflection point, we may want to focus earlier in this 10 to 14 period as they're just ramping into puberty. Now that's not, to, that's not to diminish the importance of mid to late adolescence. This period from 15 to 19 is when the spiraling is going to continue. If you're on a negative trajectory, it can really plummet into even worse uh, uh, patterns, and positive trajectories can really build. So we want to think about the 15 to 19 year olds as an important uh, window of, of development as well. And then finally, there's increasing evidence that this transition into adulthood is one of the most vulnerable times. Finding that first job, that the, the key relationships, the patterns of, of, of stable life, feeling like there are economic opportunities to succeed as an adult. So that's an important transition as, as well. But the science is different in terms of what hints we get about opportunities and vulnerabilities in these windows. So it's good to think not just of adolescence as everyone from 8 to 28, but rather windows of development and the developmental processes biologically and developmental processes socially that create these opportunities and these challenges. So adolescence starts earlier than we think, and it isn't a negative or broken stage of social and brain development, but rather a normal period where the brain is developing and individuals are going through the spirals that you talked about, developing these skills, cognitive abilities, and experience that will take them eventually into adulthood. What new behaviors and activities emerge during adolescence due to the onset of puberty? Puberty causes an increase in the attraction of novelty, exploration, and, exp and, and trying to figure out about the world and who you are in the world. That's true across a lot of species. If, if animals didn't have this tendency to explore, why would they leave their safe burrows and nests and go out into the world as an individual? Uh, this has been studied across a lot of species, this tendency that puberty and, and sexual maturation to have a tendency to explore and, and seek autonomy. Um, there's also an increase in sensation seeking. Sensation seeking isn't just being impulsive. Sensation seeking is having an appetite for, a, a, an inclination for excitement, arousal, novelty, um, bursts of, of unusual experiences and feelings. Now that's not true for every child, and there are plenty of kids who are sensation seeking when they're three and four and five and as adults. But the tendency to become more sensation-seeking goes up at puberty. Even anxious, shy kids tend to get a bit bolder. And kids that are already pretty bold tend to get a lot bolder. And if you look at the data about boredom in school, it maps on really well. Uh, David Yeager had a wonderful uh, analysis of a big population uh, data on boredom in school. And, and in, middle, in, in seventh and eighth grade is when boredom in school peaks. I'll, Huge number of kids are bored more than 50% of the time when they're peaking 
in their sensation seeking. They want to learn and explore. Sitting in a desk being told what is important often doesn't tap into that, these biological shifts. The second thing that we know deeply is that as these pubertal hormones go up, the motivational salience of being admired and respected increases. Of course kids like to be admired. Of course adults like to be admired. Status seeking is a human characteristic. And as kids go through puberty, boys and girls, as these hormones go up, the relative importance of being admired and respected and, and figuring out how to get more social status is intensified. And we have to understand this as a spurt in this, in this system that creates vulnerabilities and opportunities. The science is fascinating. We're really trying to, to take apart the complexity and understand some of the components of the hormones and the brain systems. But the principles about education and learning, I think, are beginning to be clear, even with lack of details in some of the, uh, the mechanisms. And that is, this is a period of plasticity for learning. The brain is trying to promote certain kinds of social learning that have been quite adaptive throughout most of human history. This isn't a bad period. This is a good period that, that with positive learning, can have an a very, very positive impact. I think what you said speaks to many new developments in education. We're seeing a proliferation of makerspaces and non-traditional classroom setups where children can be self-directed and they can collaborate and problem solve with each other. I'm hoping, and we're all hoping really, that these may address the boredom issue that you raised. Can you dive deeper into physical development in adolescence and what we know about the drive for admiration or approval during this period of life? What you see, at starting at about 11 in the girls and starting at about 12 in the boys, is a big spurt in height. Now, this isn't being a certain age. It's not some mystery of what's happening that suddenly growth accelerates. We know exactly what happens. This is puberty. And if you go through puberty at 11 versus 13, the growth spurt's going to happen at a different time. This is not a subtle change. If you're in the house of uh, an individual going through this, you suddenly find you can't keep them in shoes, clothes, or food in the refrigerator. This is a profound change in a very simple physical process. The point here is that, of course, something like malnutrition or a disease could affect growth at any point in this in, across this entire interval. But think about if that happened in the first year of life or if it happened just as you're starting puberty. Its total impact is going to be much larger. This is an analogy for other processes that are harder to measure. When we say kids always are sensitive to admiration, they're always sensitive to whether they're feeling respected um, and, and, and admired, that could be true, or that kids seek status or they have sensation seeking. But in the same way that height increases, we think there's certain kinds of feelings, tendencies, and learning that also accelerate as in its analogous way. We also know that the hormones that cause this growth spurt are happen to puberty. It's, it's testosterone and growth hormone and other hormones suddenly surge. That's what makes the body go up. Those same hormones affect the brain. They affect dopamine systems in the brain that are involved in reward processing and learning. They affect social and affective sensitivities to being respected and admired. And they incline motivation to pay more attention to peers and other admired adults that they have a natural inclination to pay attention to and learn about. 
This shift, it's called it's this reorientation of social and emotional information processing streams. It shifts attention and motivation more naturally to pay attention to social roles, peers, potential romantic partners, social hierarchies, certainly interest in sexual and romantic behavior, and this intense focus on oneself. Who am I? How, where do I fit in? Where do I not fit in? These tendencies are very healthy processes, and they create opportunities and vulnerabilities. One of the drivers, this isn't the most important part of the story, but it's an, it, is an, it is a very important part, is, for example, the hormone testosterone in both boys and in girls. Though these, go f these levels of, of, of hormones are high in the first year of life. They, they go down to very low levels, and at the beginning of puberty, they go up. And as they go up, and they go up earlier in girls, even though they don't go up as high in girls, and they affect the same neural systems, most of the same neural systems that they do in boys. And they sensitize individuals to what kinds of behaviors are being admired. And they're going to do more of those behaviors. This is important to understand, not because the biology is driving the behavior, because the biology sensitizes learning about social context. That's really interesting, uh, but it's not just all about admiration or respect socially. There is a neurological and hormonal component that's driving this behavior. Is this interaction well understood? What are the effects on adolescent behavior? If you look at the circuits that are involved in emotion and motivation, and the feeling base of motivation, what you feel motivated to do, those systems involve another part of the striatum, and those seem to have a more quadratic shift with age. That is, as puberty kicks in, they shoot up and then come back down. And the interactions between these circuits, how our feelings interact with our cognition and our behavior is being shaped by one system being shifted at puberty. What does that mean? I think what it means is that as puberty kicks in, it creates what I, I've often referred to as igniting passions in the developing brain. It, it creates profound changes in romantic interest, motivation, and the intensity of emotion. It increases sensation-seeking, and it sensitizes the brain to pay attention to goal-directed behaviors related to status. And it's also an opportunity to shape motivational learning. And when I say motivational learning here, it's not about making yourself do something because the goal comes later. It's not about reading literature because you want to get an A in your AP English class and get into a good college. It's about falling in love with literature so you hide under the covers and read all night. <clears throat> it's about, <clears throat> excuse me, it's about these feeling-based aspects of wanting, liking, and desiring particular kinds of goals. It's about heartfelt goals, values, and priorities. It's like when kids w fall in love with a sport and you'd have to keep them from practicing shooting their basketball or kicking the soccer ball. It's about falling in love with poetry that kids will spend all of the time available writing and reading poetry or, or playing a particular instrument or being engaged in making the world a better place or falling in love with a particular religion. This capacity for intense motivational alignment with certain kinds of activities is shaped strongly by this period of time. To summarize the practical aspects of this work, I think we're increasingly understanding that early adolescence, this period of 10 to 14, the onset of puberty, is a period for adjusting motivations and early identity. Adjusting motivations can also be disengagement. 
it, depression rates increase at the same time kids have these igniting passions. But it's a time also to adjust motivations to particular kinds of goals and activities. This is a time of intense romantic and sexual feelings and confusion for a lot of young people. Finding a path to acceptance, belonging, respect, and autonomy is naturally facilitated by these changes. Kids' sensitivity to what, are the, what do I do to feel admired and valued? How do I contribute in ways that makes me feel valued, expanded, enlarged in some way that's not just about myself, it's about being part of and connected to something larger than myself. Kids are seeking meaning and purpose. They're, they're seeking ways to feel enlarged that can be very healthy. And yet this, this urgency to get the fee desired feelings is also a risky time to get these feelings in cheap ways that can give you short-term uh, versions of these feelings. And that's part of the risk of the negative spirals. These, these changes are also interacting with other adolescent domains, the risk-taking, the novelty-seeking, and increased fear and emotional reactivity. But together, they're shaping high-intensity motivational learning. I'm going to finish by giving one of my favorite examples uh, of that, that I think really captures key elements of this, and that is that, that adolescence, particularly after the onset of puberty, is a time that the brain is capable of transformational changes in motivation. And the most striking example of that is literally falling in love. Prepubertal kids develop crushes, but they don't exchange 100 words and two kisses and be willing to die for each other and destroy their, their families and feel like the universe had always intended for them to be together. Now, that's not an absurd comedy of Shakespeare. It's the most successful tragedy in Western literature. And there's a reason Shakespeare made Juliet 13. It, there's this understanding across cultures that this capacity to hijack every motivation with just a few intense experiences is facilitated in this window of time. But this capacity for sudden transformational changes in motivation is not simply literally falling in love. This is also a metaphor. It's a time kids can fall in love with literature, dance, music, <clears throat> a particular religion or philosophy, the idealistic ambition to make the world a better place with math, science, social justice. It is a vulnerable time when these motives can be hijacked for negative things. And it's also a vulnerable time for, for withdrawal and disconnection from any passion. It's a time when kids become more apathetic, bored, and depressed. But that doesn't mean the model's wrong. It is quite consistent with this idea of rapid adjustments that can spiral down as well as spiral up. And the developmental science of motivation is at a really early stage. I'm curious if there's any emerging research that can help educators better address these many opportunities in the lives of adolescent students. Even though this is all at an early stage, the research that is, we want to help practitioners point their students towards positive spirals and good engagement while avoiding depression and, and other issues such as apathy. Research clearly indicates that being more positively involved and engaged is a good thing for students, and they're more likely to graduate high school and go on to be college and career ready. And this is something we frequently emphasize at all for ed. So can you provide uh, any insights about this emerging research? So one of the things we're trying to emphasize is that adding a bit more precision into the understanding developmental processes, that it's not just being an age or a grade level, um, that, that and to emphasize the positive aspects of these uh, of the science rather than the negative. It's interesting if you look at parents and other adults' response to infants and toddlers 
I mean, infant toddlers are a huge amount of work and this it, it, it and stressful, but there's this sense of wonder and joy of watching infants and toddlers explore. The emotion when you're dealing with kids going into adolescence tends to be different. It's why 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 isn't it as as wonderful to watch the awkward exploration uh, and and emotional raw struggles? Um, it it we. This tendency to problematize youth um, because they become more threatening, because they, their power looks more threatening to us uh, than toddlers. Uh, and I think that if we can help to refocus this as a window of opportunity, as a, as a time of learning, and that a lot of these struggles to push against um, adult uh, efforts to control and steer what they're doing is a healthy part of what they're, they're, they're doing. I so, and, and I think the second uh, part of that is that the more precisely we can understand particularly important early windows. Uh, when I was initially doing a lot of this work, <clears throat> and we would talk about you know, trying to understand the deeper science relevant to things like depression or substance use, and we would talk about 10 to 14, that say, wait a minute, why do you want to study them? Th these are problems that occur in 15 to 19 year olds. And, and I would, as a developmentalist, say, yes. And, when they, and what didn't I make clear in our model? Because, you know, it's if, you, if you're yes, we need to treat people with lung cancer in their 60s and 70s, but ultimately we need to stop them from smoking. But but I think in similar ways, the early roots of these patterns of behavior are going to be more uh, modifiable, especially at the population level and at the education level. Um, of course kids are going to get into severe problems and need different kinds of interventions later in adolescence. But I think focusing on investing, just like we've, we've globally invested in infants and, and young children around the world and had a huge impact uh, in really inspiring ways, I think there's opportunities to invest in that early adolescent period to help especially kids that are struggling and disadvantaged and don't have ways, don't have a lot of ways to feel admired, have ways to feel respected and, and, and their autonomy can be, feel more threatening to people. Creating ways for them to explore and find their own path to be admired and supporting those in really valuable ways early, I think is, is a part of this. You're talking about the importance of engagement, of making students part of their learning process and giving them agency so they have chances to both get this feeling of respect and accomplishment and also just so they're involved with their interests. At Alfred, we often point to developing deeper learning competencies. So we want every child to finish high school with core content knowledge, the ability to think critically, to solve problems, and the ability to be agents of their own learning going forward uh, beyond their, their schooling. So to develop these competencies will probably require a different type of pedagogy than those traditionally implemented. Could you talk a little bit about some of these approaches and how they're supported by research from the science of adolescent learning? So great, totally on point uh, question. I, I think that that's exactly the area that I see as the greatest potential in the following ways. At some level, discovery learning and and uh, personalized learning is going to enhance learning at any point in lifespan. But the principles you just talked about, engaging young people in ways that make them feel like they have control and autonomy and it resonates with what feels important and salient to them, is intensified at this period of puberty. Those principles, which may be true in general, 
become ever more important. And so highlighting and prioritizing those issues to an even greater extent. We, we've learned this in a number of areas of, of even public health or behavior change with kids. Giving them good information about healthy eating or exercise or anti-bullying, if, if those messages, if the process of giving that message somehow makes them feel diminished, makes them feel like they're being talked down to or that adults are trying to tell them they don't know what's best for themselves, they need to listen to adult advice, that feeling of being diminished or disrespected will completely offset good information from well-meaning people. It resonates with what you're talking about in terms of pedagogy and, and learning. Helping kids discover what's true for themselves and scaffolding that for good reasons, but giving them more autonomy. Their natural attraction to want to be interested in each other in social relationships, working in groups, um, creative approaches to having social interaction and the energizing of social interactions, working together in teams and projects. Again, lots of people have been talking about this long before we, we, we knew the neuroscience, but the degree to which that becomes even more important right in this window of time. Um, rather than going against the grain and making kids sit in their desk, and whether it's with technology or a book, and, and solve problems, that helps one set of skills, but if it's going against the grain of their natural motivations, they're incredibly bored and feel like, I don't belong here. This doesn't feel salient in my life. That, that, the degree to which we go against the grain of those natural motivations versus aren't there ways to master the same cognitive skills in ways that are going with the grain of having kids work in groups, having them do some mixture of competition and cooperation, of teams of people trying to solve problems. Um, and, and relating the problems increasingly to things that feel salient, to what really matters in their lives, and helping them feel connected in their own identities to those issues that they care about. So again, these principles resonate with what teachers have known, and yet this added emphasis that right in that window, and I think there are some really nice studies that show that even light touch interventions, you know, in that, that seventh grade period when so many kids are falling off the trajectory um, that, that make them feel valued and challenged in positive ways can totally change their trajectory. So I think these, the, the principles that you're, you're emphasizing broadly are, are strongly resonant with the science and the science would suggest that the importance is even greater in that window that we're talking about. That's an important point for education leaders and policymakers to know. Now, of course, biology doesn't know that technology is also affecting adolescent development. Today's adolescents face a unique developmental challenge with the advances and increased prevalence of technology in every part of theirs and all of our modern lives. We use devices for everything. Most schools now allow devices in class because they decide the benefits of access to information far outweighs the challenges brought on by technology. But those challenges still exist, and they often have negative ramifications for learning. Just for example, social media, often talked about, can be both a great source of interaction for adolescents, but also can be immensely distracting. Time spent on devices is rampant, and the potential for dangerous online behavior creates many problems. So what does your research have to say about all of this? If kids have one set of experiences in school, 
and their sense of self or agency or feeling admired uh, outside of school and their experiences um, through technology uh, are very, very powerful and different. Um, the, the rapid, intense changes in how children and adolescents interact with the world through technology, um, we all know it, we all see it in our daily lives, and yet it's happening so fast um, that it's, it's almost blurring our, I, I think, our perspective. Um, uh, somebody was we, we were talking about tablets um, have only existed since 2010. Okay, I mean, it doesn't see. I mean, they, they're so part of our life. The 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 smartphones. The, the, we so quickly just think of these things as normal, and the virtual reality, the augmented reality, the the, the capacity for compelling experiences, and then of course, as many people have pointed out, how many of the kids who have trouble having the self-discipline to do even an hour of homework a week will spend 40 hours a week earning status in their video games. Um, the, these dimensions of learning and social experience and how rapidly they're changing and how, how savvy some of these approaches are at capturing motivation for kids um, are really, really important things to be considered in relation to this. Because I think rather than, there's a tendency to either be dystopian or utopian. You know, like there are people that think that the, this technology revolution is going to save the world and do unbelievable things for education and kids, and there are people who think it's gonna ruin the world and ruin kids' uh, experiences. And of course, there's a lot of reasons to believe it's somewhere in the middle, that there are going to be good and bad ways technology can impact uh, human lives. And how do, we, how do we engage these changes as policymakers caring about kids' education and experience? And how do we um, promote versions of technology? We're not gonna stop it. I mean, we, I, I, I think, um, it, it's become clear, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world, the rate of change uh, of technologies uh, is happening and the kids are the early adopters. And there are two or three steps ahead of their parents um, in most of the areas of new technology really fast. And so it's happening. And finding positive ways to incorporate the, the technology revolution, I think, is a huge uh, component of, of this. I want to take a moment to push farther on the social media component of technology. Adolescents appear to be constantly online, especially on social media. Are there any benefits to this? And how can we think about adolescent use of technology in socially positive ways? When the use of technology enhances social interaction, when it's the basis for parents and children interacting with each other or children interacting with each other in ways that are scaffolded and promote the other kinds of learning, technology can be a very positive. And when technology is a distraction from the social world and a way to isolate and mainly be entertained in easy entertainment ways, which is a, a lot of educational apps are, are much more in that category, I think that principle emerges over and over again. And so um, whether you're talking about virtual reality, there are versions of virtual reality or augmented reality that can bring people together. I mean, some of the, I don't wanna say anything good or bad about Pokemon Go, but I know people who, 
met their neighbors for the first time because they were out, you know, capturing. I mean, I think the capacity, not, not that that's the answer, but I think there is a capacity for these technologies to promote social interactions and to have parents in the same way that a parent reading a book or watching a TV show with their child talking about the issues that come up is very different than kids doing those things alone. I think this is even more amplified with technology. And so I think that these, uh, that the, the evidence that this creates opportunities for kids working together um, it, with the technology on a project and do some augmented reality version where they have real objects in the technology so that it's not about immersing in the technology that isolates you from other people, but rather it's a tool that promotes uh, social interaction that helps you learn. So it's really about relationships. Uh, let me give you one example where in terms of the adolescence, I think the data, most of the data that people are worried it's destroying kids' abilities to interact have not been supported or, or, or there's not a lot of concern. But there is one place where there's already enough data that we can flag as a concern, and that is sleep deprivation and late schedules. Uh, the data, the meta-analysis was recently done and, and the putting together data from a few different sources. It's not simply that the technology is keeping them up. It's, a, it's one of those spirals. It's, at the time the brain expects it to be dark, um, you've got light getting into the brain telling it that it's light. You've got all this emotional arousal, you've got excitement, you've got mastery challenges, you've got kids sleeping with their phone to get the text message that, about the important social information in the middle of the night. But that, then the, the, the later and later scheduled and catch up sleep on the wrong phase of the cycle, sleeping in really late on the weekends, this becomes a spiral. And then as kids are irritable and sleep deprived, they use more stimulus. It's, it's a set of spirals. And technology has amplified that, type, that spiral. And having kids use technology at night is clearly a concern. Um, that doesn't mean technology is bad, but it may mean that having an electronic curfew or having a period of time the technology is turned off could be a very, very important uh, part of the puzzle. So it's really clear from your last response that adults play a key role in getting adolescents in their lives to adopt good habits around technology. This conversation has been so fascinating and I want to thank you for joining us today. There's a lot to unpack here for our listeners. Our guest is Dr. Ronald Dahl, a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also director of the Institute of Human Development and director of the Center for the Developing Adolescent, both at UC Berkeley. He's a nationally recognized developmental scientist committed to interdisciplinary studies around adolescent development with a long-term goal of improving the lives of children and adolescents. Thank you again, Dr. Dahl, for joining us. Thank you for listening to Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast on how the research from the science of adolescent learning can inform middle and high school design and the work of school leaders. Tell your colleagues, friends, and families about Critical Window, and please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to make sure you catch future episodes. This podcast was produced by Aharon Charnov, Hans Herman, and Robin Harper. To learn more about the science of adolescent learning, visit all4ed.org slash SAL.